listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Midtown. This is our sermon series on the Gospel of Luke. Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogues, being praised by everyone. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, Isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that took place in Capernaum do here in your hometown also. He also said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's days, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, while a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And in the prophet Elisha's, ta- Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy. And yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, Everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. So good to be with you all this morning to worship the Lord. We praise the Lord for just this Diversity Sunday, a time that we set apart, uh, one of the times we set apart each year just to reflect upon our vision as a church, um, to be a a church that uh, reaches people with the gospel, that builds them up as a church, and that sends them to the neighborhoods and the nations uh, with the message of Jesus Christ. Amen. Isn't it beautiful to gather and to just be reminded of the fact that God is saving the people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Amen. Amen. All right, if you would uh, pray with me, we're going to dive into today's text. Uh, Gracious Father, I worship you with your people. We exalt you knowing that on this Lord's Day all over the world, you are being glorified in homes, in apartments, in huts, in cathedrals. Where on Sunday morning, people gather celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his promise to save his people from their sins and to return back to this earth 
fully inaugurating his kingdom here. And as we listen to the sermon today, may you just sweep through our heart what you are doing globally and what you have been doing in the past and what you will do in the future. Would you bring peace to the mind that is disturbed and running and distracted? Would you bring joy to the heart that is heavy burdened? Lord, would you give us Jesus? Not by might nor by power, but according to your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Over 10 years ago, I was uh, on a mission trip with the previous church that I pastored. It was in the third world country, and uh, it was in a country that did not really have access to a lot of theological training and Bible teaching. And so uh, my wife and I, along with other pastors and uh, their uh, wives, along with members of our church, we went to this third world country to put on a conference where we just did uh, teachings on the Bible and, and what it mean, meant to be Christians and to, to lead a church in light of the scriptures. We also gave them various resources. And while there is a, on, during the ses- second session that I was teaching, um, I'm in the middle of talking essentially about what it means to live from the inside out as a pastor and as a leader. And while I'm there teaching, I'm teaching from Ephesians chapter 5 and specifically encouraging uh, the pastors. We were with men with the the men and the women were with the women um, about Christ's call for us to love our brides as Christ loved the church. And as the sermon is, as the talk is going and and up to this point in the trip, it was just a blast. It was, it was wonderful. When all of a sudden, I noticed that everyone seemed to be agitated. And one guy got up and just started yelling at me. And so I look at the interpreter and I ask him, what is happening? <laughs> and he says, oh boy, you really just stepped in it. And I said, did I say something that was not true? And he says, no, what you said was true, uh, but there's, uh, you just stepped on a cultural line, landmine and I should have stopped interpreting and explained to you that you were about to step in. And so just as he said that, I looked up and three guys stand up and they're coming towards me and their fingers are wagging and I'm thinking, oh my word. And suddenly some other men run out of the sanctuary And about five minutes later, after the interpreter is trying to calm everyone down, uh, they calm down because the police show up and bring peace to the situation. (laughs) By God's grace, the mission trip recovered (laughs) and and we had a good time. But as a young pastor, man, did I learn some lessons. Uh, My lack of inexperience, my lack of wisdom, my lack of cultural knowledge and insensitivity allowed me to offend people in ways that I did not intend. In this text, we see that Jesus is going to preach a sermon that almost gets him killed. But he's not going to almost get killed because of his insensitivity or because he's inadvertently saying something or because he steps on a cultural landmine without knowing it. Jesus is almost going to get killed here in Luke chapter 4 because he knows a cultural idol. 
And rather than to let up, he's going to press all the way in with the goal that some might be liberated. Today, I want to talk from the topic, good news to the poor. And in today's text, we're going to see that Luke is going to move a a sermon and an occurrence that probably happened a little later in Jesus' life um, up to the forefront of this book in order to organize the next five chapters um, that we have in our Bibles. So this occurrence where Jesus goes back to his hometown in Nazareth likely happened a little later. And Luke is not hiding that. The careful reader, as you're reading that, you'll see that Luke even points to the fact that Jesus has already been in Galilee doing all kinds of miracles. And he's already been in Capernaum specifically and done miracles. But the way that Luke organizes this reading, if you think that Luke is just trying to go into into a specific chronological order, um, the, the fact is he's not. He, he wants to make a theological point. And the theological point that he's making is this, is that Jesus came into Galilee to preach good news to the poor. That was his purpose. It was to preach good news to the poor. And what's interesting here is that from this point all the way to chapter 9, verse 50, that's going to be Luke's point is that even though Jesus is doing all kinds of miracles and is, people are amazed at him and they, they love him, uh, Luke doesn't want us to get distracted from the fact that Jesus came preaching. And Jesus came with a message. That's why we see in chapter 4, verse 31, then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. This next story in Luke is going to be about a, a man being clean from an unclean spirit as a result of the ministry of Jesus. But Luke wants to emphasize, yes, this miracle is going to happen, but the reason Jesus was there was to preach. It was to teach. And the next story over, we're going to see that Luke is going to record about all these healings that happened in Capernaum. And we're going to see in verse 44, he's going to conclude that section by saying, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Luke's point, even as he's showing these powerful stories of healing and restoration, is that Jesus came preaching. And he didn't just come preaching. He came preaching as the anointed one, as the Messiah, as the servant leader that Isaiah prophesied about. And so in this text, we see that Jesus is going to come into the tabernacle, uh, into, I'm sorry, into the uh, synagogue on Sabbath, which was a day of worship for the Jewish people. And he is going to be given an opportunity to teach. And the synagogue that he goes to is a synagogue that's probably very near and dear to his heart. It's back in his hometown of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is a small town. Most historians say at this time, they probably only had about 400 people living there. And on the Sabbath, as they practice Sabbath, sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, uh, what communities would do, Jewish communities, is come together on Saturday and they would uh, read from the Old Testament, the prophets and the law, and someone would give a talk um, about what they had just read. And so Jesus is back to his hometown, back to the hood, back to a place that is very impoverished, that is very familiar with him. And he's been selected to give this talk and he gives it from Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 2. These are the verses that's going to be read. Now, what's interesting about Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 59, Isaiah gives Israel a strong rebuke, essentially calling them to repentance. 
And then in Isaiah chapter 60 through 62, Isaiah starts talking about this servant leader um, that is talked about all throughout the book of Isaiah and how he one day will bring liberation to those who are captured. Uh, Throughout the book of Isaiah, we see this messianic figure. He's royal. He is uh, powerful. He is is healing um, Israel. And he is the one in which um, Israel is awaiting. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, this same servant uh, leader is said to uh, be the one who's going to bring justice throughout all of Israel and, and justice to the nation and the spirit is going to be upon them. And that's where we find ourselves here in Isaiah chapter 4. Jesus takes the scroll and he begins to read the scripture and he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. The spirit of the Lord is on me. Now, if you've been following with us in Luke, you know that the Holy Spirit is a major component in the ministry of Jesus and in the gospel of Luke. At Jesus' baptism, the spirit descends from heaven on Jesus like a dove. After Jesus' baptism, he goes into the wilderness, and in the wilderness, it says, or as he's going into the wilderness, it says that the Holy Spirit, that Jesus was full of the Spirit. We read a couple verses just before this, as it is talking about Jesus going into Galilee. It says that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Now, Jesus reads a chapter from Isaiah, which is emphasizing the Spirit of the Lord being on this mysterious servant leader who's this kind of messianic figure. And then he goes on to say, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then in verse 21, we see that he's going to summarize his sermon to them and just say, today, As you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. And so Jesus is back at home. He reads this text. And I think in verse 21, uh, this is just Luke summarizing the meat of his text, that essentially Jesus is going to preach himself and say, yo, this is about me. And not only is this about me, but this has already been fulfilled. I've already been anointed to preach the good news I've already taken the gospel, though he will continue to, to the poor. I am proclaiming and have proclaimed already in Galilee the release of captive. I've already healed people who were blind. And I've already freed the oppressed. I am him, is what Jesus is going to say. And then I believe he expounds on the scripture because after Jesus says this, it says that they were amazed at his gracious words, which means that he probably didn't just preach a one uh, sentence sermon. <laughs> Uh, He probably expounded on it, and they're like, yo, this is amazing. But what Luke wants us to see is that Jesus comes, and and he comes, and he comes preaching to the poor. And the question is, who is the poor? Who is the poor? As we look at the scripture, we see that there are two main buckets for those who are poor. The first is, is that the poor are those who are physically poor, who are literally physically poor, financially poor. Now, Luke, again, brings this time in Nazareth, probably up closer to the beginning of the ministry, so that as we're reading the rest of the Jesus story, we see that his ministry 
was first and foremost to preach and to proclaim the gospel, that he came with a message. He came as a heralder of good news, that the kingdom of God has broken into the world and that the kingdom of God is near. God's reign and rule is near. And whoever repents and turns and trusts me shall be saved and be a part of this kingdom. But what Matthew does early on in his gospel is Matthew has a a, 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 uh, a part of, of his gospel in Matthew chapter 4 where he shows us that in chapter 3 that Jesus first came preaching um, to the poorest, literally the poorest part of Israel. He comes to the land of Zebulun, which has a nickname as the land of the shadow of death. And historians say, and Matthew is actually going to take an Old Testament uh, reference and and show that Jesus is fulfilling this Old Testament reference that where it was the most darkest in Israel, a light has shone and that the gospel has come through. This land of Zebulun was a very depressed land physically because it was at the northern part of, of Galilee. And historically, when a nation was coming in to attack Israel, this will be the first place that they hit. And so this land was known to be trampled over, and it just became known as a place of of impoverishment and a place that was depressed. And really, a lot of times, the outcasts of society ended up there. Matthew Gospel shares that this is where Jesus kind of does his first ministry. And when we read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, a lot of the people who are present in that sermon and who are part of the crowd comes from there. So Jesus first went to a place that was physically depressed and physically poor. He went to preach good news to those who were down and out, to the marginalized, to the lessers of society. But when the Bible talks about Jesus coming to the poor, he's not just talking about the physical poor. He's also talking about the spiritually poor. And a spiritually poor person can be some person who has material wealth. Um, Jesus is going to use an example later of of Naaman, who is physically wealthy. He is the uh, leader of the army of Aram and is a, a general, a person of prominence. But he is spiritually poor because he has leprosy and no one amongst his Gentile friends can bring healing to him. So he goes and he seeks out healing from Elisha. And he is so desperate that he does whatever Elisha says do, and he ends up dipping in the pool seven times to be cleansed, which seems like foolishness to him, but he does it because he is in deep need. And God heals his skin from leprosy. So though he is wealthy, he is still considered poor by the Bible standards because he recognizes that he has a very deep need for God. And Jesus has come for both. Those who are physically poor, who are the lessers of society, who are are marginalized, who are broken, who are looked over, who are oppressed. But mainly and, and mostly what we're going to see today is that he first and foremost is coming with good news for those who are spiritually poor. Those who recognize that they are in need of God. And I think that here Luke is going to spell out who the poor is by giving us some some buckets here. Those who are poor are those who are in captivity. 
Jesus says, listen, I have come to set the captives free. Those who are spiritually in bondage, those who are enslaved by demonic powers, those who have burdens on them by the religious leaders who are blind guys and who are telling them that that life and following Yahweh is all about keeping these 600 plus laws and then some that, uh, that, that they had. He says, no, I have come to proclaim a release. I have come to proclaim to those who are tired and weary and heavy laden that in me there is rest. The poor are those who are blind, both physically and spiritually. The poor are those who are oppressed. And we see in Luke that those who are oppressed and those who are lessers in society are those who have sicknesses and illness, who are declared unclean. And they're also women. Women. He says, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which would have probably pointed the uh, early readers of Luke, Jewish readers, back to the year of Jubilee, which was a year that happened every 50 years in Israel, where slaves were set free and where a person had lost their, their, their land, was given their land back. Jesus essentially is saying, I am the year of Jubilee. I am the fulfillment of it. And I have come to set my people free. Now, what's interesting here is in verse 20, it says that he wrote up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, he sat down in the eyes of everyone in the synagogue. They were fixed on him. And he began by saying to them, today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Look at verse 22. And they were all speaking well of him and were amazed by his gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, isn't this Joseph's son? So let's at the way that they respond to Jesus' message. They respond with amazement. They're like, this is a great sermon. Praise the Lord. And it could have been that as those who are in Nazareth, as those who would have seen themselves as poor and oppressed and and, and, um, and, and the outcasts of society, that they're like, amen, this is great news. You have come to help us and to set us free. As they thought about the Roman occupation and as they thought about how Gentiles were on their holy land desecrating it and how they were overtaxed and how Roman centurions were taking advantage of them. They're like, praise the Lord. That man is preaching. Preach, preacher. (laughs) But at the same time, there seems to be a spirit that is happening amongst the crowd where they are starting to wonder, wait, isn't this Joseph's son? Don't we know him? We We are familiar with him. Hey, didn't you didn't you used to wipe his nose when he came on the Sabbath with his family because it was running and it was full of snot? And so Jesus is going to continue his sermon. And we don't, we don't know exactly why at this point Jesus is going to press in deeper. It could have been because he senses that the crowd is so familiar with him um, that they are not, that they're dishonoring him and not acknowledging him as who he is, which is the Messiah and the Lord of all things. 
Jesus is about to press. He's going to tell a proverb and he's going to give two illustrations that are going to enrage them. He's going to step in it and then he's going to step in it even further in order to intentionally draw out their hearts. Now, it could be because this is a response to the fact that they called him Joseph's son. Jesus is far more than Joseph's son. Right. I don't know how many of you saw The Last Dance. It's a a basketball show that came out during the pandemic that saved basketball lovers when the NBA got shut down. And it's about the Chicago Bulls and their last run in 1998 to the championship, right? Y'all, y'all remember that? ESPN started running those commercials and then all of a sudden you got Michael Jordan and they're like, this new documentary is coming out. I'm like, yes, praise the Lord, right? <laughs> and as a Chicago kid, man, I'm glued to the television. In fact, I watch it every year over for the nostalgia and to remind me of how God brought a bright light in the midst of darkness. Hallelujah. <laughs> Free the oppressed, amen. Every year. And it just gives me this nostalgia. It reminds me of my childhood. Six championships in eight years, right? And this is a side mark, but because I got to witness that in Chicago as a Chicagoan, I just have a soft spot for dynasties, which is why I'm going for the Chiefs today. Amen. Don't stone me. 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 We cool. We cool. All right. Don't take me to the edge of the cliff. All right. All right, it's hard to get up there and to stay up there, amen? And so, where was I going with that? Oh, so, so the thing I loved about that is Jordan is so competitive, right? And he says this clip after being disrespected in the playoffs. They lose a game that they should not have lost. And one of his old teammates just talks trash at the end of the game when the game is over. And so they show him in his locker room reflecting on the game afterwards with a baseball bat and a cigar in his mouth. And he uh, he's just sitting there. He's like, oh, wait till the next game. Right. And then they showed the film years later of Michael Jordan seeing them lose that game. And he said something to the effect of. And I took that personal. Here I am, the greatest player, we're the greatest team. They beat us one game, they trash talking, and I took that person. And he came back the next game and just completely demolished them. When I read this text, part of me is like, man, maybe Jesus pressed in because he just took that person. I just gave y'all this great sermon. I just said, I'm here, I'm here, I'm him. And y'all talking about, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this Mary's baby? Another gospel is going to say, isn't he related to so-and-so? And so Jesus then gives them a proverb, which says, Dr. Hill yourself, what we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do here in our own hometown. In other words, he's saying that, hey, you guys want me to do what I did elsewhere, but I'm not going to. And essentially the reason he's not going to is he recognizes that their hearts are hard and that they are so familiar with them that they don't recognize that they need them. That like the Gentiles, like the Romans, they're sick as well. They're sinners as well. And so to make his point, what does he do? He gives two illustrations that are going to upset him. And what these two illustrations have in common is that prophets are involved, Elijah and Elisha. And this was done during a period of Israel when Israel was in straight rebellion against God. And he's going to give two illustrations of God passing by the average, uh, all 
of Israel in order to heal Gentile people. And he brings up a widow in Zarephath who is without food and who Elijah meets and Elijah asks for food. And by faith, she just starts making food and God gives her food. And then Elijah ends up essentially healing her son. And then he brings up the story of Elisha and Naaman, who was a general um, who ended up submitting to a prophet as he had leprosy and being clean. And then we read in verse 28, and when they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They're mad. And why are they mad? They're mad probably in the same way that Jonah's mad. When we read the story of Jonah, um, they don't like Gentiles. They are self-righteous. They are the people of God. Who are you to say that you are not going to do miracles amongst us and that you are going to go and take this good news to other people? We are the people of God. Yes, they were physically poor, but they were not spiritually poor. There was a lot of pride in their heart. They remind us of Luke chapter 15, the older son, who when the younger son comes back from just completely throwing away all of his inheritance. The older son sees the younger son come back and is embraced by the father. And rather than rejoice, he's upset and he's angry. And so here Jesus presses in in order to show them that that he has not come for those who are spiritually wealthy. He has come for those who are spiritually impoverished. He has come for those not who are well, but he has come for those who are sick. And that the only way into his kingdom is through a door that is low and cross-shaped. Verse 29 says that they got up, they drove him out of town, and they brought him on the edge of the hill that their town was built on. And in intending to hurl him over the cliff, and they intended to hurl him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Now, I'm not sure if you've watched The Chosen, um, and if you haven't watched the show, The Chosen, which is about the life of Jesus, um, and it's really well done, um, they have this scene in The Chosen. And you can't get upset with me for giving this scene away because it's been out for a long time. Like, that's on you. Seriously. <laughs> you don't get to throw stones at me this time. That's on you. Like, come on, come on, get with it. But they have this scene where uh, Jesus says this in a synagogue. He's taken outside of the camp. He's about to be hurled over. And uh, the way the chosen interprets it is that Jesus basically looks at them and, he's, they, and he says to them, not today. <laughs> this ain't happening today. And everybody stops. They put down their rocks and he just walks through the crowd. I don't know what happened. Uh, Luke seems to be writing in a way that makes us think that this was like a supernatural um, escape or somehow God just got him out of there. But the fact is that it wasn't Jesus' time to die because he had more good news to bring to the poor. But there will come a day where Jesus would be taken outside the camp of Jerusalem. And just like here, when they took him up a hill to hurl him over, he would willingly go down to Via Della Rosa, the road of sorrow, and up Golgotha's hill. And rather than call down angels from heaven to rescue him, even as he's being taunted, this proverb is being fulfilled. The crowds are saying to him, you have healed others. Now heal yourself, save yourself. 
And rather than save himself, Jesus goes up on the cross. He allows his arms to be stretched wide. He allows his body to be broken. He allows a crown of thorns to be placed upon his head. And he willingly takes on our iniquity and our transgressions. And he allows God's holy wrath to be poured on him so that we who are rich, as we look at him, can become impoverished. And we can place our sins upon him so that he who was poor could die in our place. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, that Paul is, is talking about Jesus when he says this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty, you might become rich. Jesus took upon the sins of the world and though he was fully God, he became incarnate. He willingly became Joseph's son and he wore that with pride and he lived the perfect life and he died in our place so that those of us who recognize this through the spirit that they are poor can become rich in him. So my application today is is pretty simple as we look at this text. It's very easy for us to just read the story of the people of Nazareth and to hold our nose and say, how could they? But man, I think God's invitation for me and for you as we read this text is to say, Lord, there are many ways in which I am just like them. And apart from the grace of God, I am the one who is responding to Jesus's sermons with arrogance and with pride. I am the one who who's enraged that I can't control him and that he doesn't give me exactly what I want when I want it. I am enraged that his mercy is so big that the person that I'm bitter against, that I'm holding things against, that I hate, that that group that just is backwards and that just doesn't understand, the one who votes in the opposite way that I am and who thinks that they're okay, that God would accept them as they turn to Jesus and trust in him. I am the people of Nazareth. You are too. So three quick points of application. One, today, if you are here and you are broken, man, you just feel like you are, you don't fit in, like you are an outcast, like you are backwards, like your sin is heavy, like there's just so much darkness in your heart that if people knew how dark it was, that they would prematurely throw you in jail and in prison. If your guilt is heavy this morning, I come to tell you that Jesus has come to preach good news to you, that in Christ, it is the year of Jubilee, that there is freedom, that there is rest, that there is love, that there is mercy, that there's nothing that you could do to separate yourself from God's love. And that if you turn and trust God, with all of your heart and just fall to your face, 
trusting and believing that Jesus is Lord, that you can be right with God and that his kingdom can come and explode in your heart and that you can today be a new creation, that you can today be a part of his family. Today, you can be made right with him. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what you have done. Jesus welcomes you into his kingdom and into his family. And he and all he calls you to do is to become poor. To recognize that you are spiritually needy, that your works, that your righteousness, that your chance, that your knowledge, that your good deeds apart from Christ are not good enough. That what saves you are his works and his works alone. And I think that's why Luke just uses this word indiscriminately, the poor, is that part of what he's getting at in general, most people who are poor, not, not everyone, as some people are poor because they have made bad decisions and because they have done things that are, are arrogant, because they won't get help, because they won't humble themselves. But, but there are many people who are, 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 are poor who, who recognize that in their poverty, the only way out is by getting outside help. That they need someone outside of themselves to to come and to rescue them from their poverty, from their nihilism. And that truly anyone who has anything that is good on this side of heaven has it as a result of God's grace and God's mercy. And yes, they may have worked hard and they may have. But listen, it took God's grace and mercy to give them the energy and the strength and the wisdom to work hard. So Jesus is calling you to depend on his grace, not on your own work, not on your own wisdom, not on your own schemes, not on your own righteousness. Second, if you are in Christ and you are here today, and I'll say this in all love to our church, y'all, man, there's a real danger in our church amongst our people to respond how the people of Nazareth responded to Jesus. A lot of us, man, we've grown up in church We grew up in a home where we were just schooled in the way of of God. We are immersed in Bible, in biblical language. And and like the people here, we look at Jesus and we are not really amazed to the point of turning, following him and trusting him. We may be entertained by him. We may think he's a good idea. But but at the end of the day, deep down in our hearts, we are not resting in his righteousness and what he has done. We've been walking with Jesus so long that we are actually deceived. We think that we are good. We don't say it, but man, we come to church every Sunday. We read our Bible. We know some theology. We, we're rearing our children up in the Lord, our friend group. We're, we're Christian, and there is a, a pharisaicalness. There is a, a pride that is in our heart. And, and rather than be desperate and to be poor in spirit and to be like a deer panting for the water, so my soul, we get comfortable, we get content, we say, I know this, we check out. And we start planning the rest of our day and the rest of our year and our vacations and our fun moments. And we just coast and we look down on others. 
as we pass them at the light, as we see them in our city, as we drive into Shelby Park and see the brokenness around us. And we think deep, deep down in our heart, thank you, Jesus, I am not like them. Oh, but we are. Except for the grace of God, we are. There is nothing in you or in me that is inherently good. It is only by God's grace that we are present. It is only by God's grace that we can sing together. It is only by God's grace that we can come into the sanctuary. Jesus is the mind regulator. Jesus is the doctor who heals. Jesus is the lawyer in the courtroom. It's because of him that we are justified. We are not good in and of ourselves. All that is good that we have is because of him and through him. And if he was to remove his mercy, if he was to remove his grace, we would lose our mind. And as a church, man, I just, I pray that the Lord by his grace and and we're working Towards this as a church, y'all can pray. We've got a group coming in that's going to help us to think through as a church all that we're doing. And, and we're starting tomorrow, our leadership team, meeting with them to think through how do we bring it all together, channel it all together so that we become apprentices, a disciples of Jesus who are spirit-filled people, who are following the example of Jesus, which was an example of declaration and demonstration of proclamation and protest against the darkness of this world. So y'all pray for us as we are are trying to channel that as a church to to give you a, a more clear target to say This is who we are as the people. We don't do this alone. We don't love the poor alone. We don't proclaim the gospel alone. We don't do life together alone, but we do it together. And I just want to praise God for what God has done in our church. Man, I was thinking about this this week, literally just paused and made a list of how many people in our congregation is just living this out, living out declaration and demonstration by being present to those who are broken, by not creating a a safe bubble in which they just stay in and, and never step out in the name of Jesus, but who are going to the, the edges and the darkness of this world and however God has called them by faith as he sends them to with wisdom. And honestly, and this is not to boast at all. I don't hear it this way. But man, I became overwhelmed when I thought about particular members and, and how they take refugees in their home and, and, and immigrants in their home and, and move towards brokenness in our neighborhood. And I just began to praise God. Then I began to praise God for our pastors. We've got pastors who are dedicating their life and their work and have ministries to equip churches to equip for the poor who we've got one pastor who has a a ministry of channeling um, resources and monies and helping those who are refugees to have a home here in Louisville and who are strategically allowing uh, and employing Christians to live amongst them, to share the gospels, to be missionaries here. And, And I just, I could keep going. So many examples. 
But man, even with those examples, I just found myself like, Lord, I, I love this, but I believe you are calling us collectively to not settle. When the gospel grips a person's heart, they, over time, as an apprentice of Jesus, become like Jesus. And the mark of Jesus' ministry was proclamation, but it was also generosity. It was generosity in how he spent his time and his resources. And God is calling all of us as spirit-filled people to be generous, generous with our speech, but also generous with our lives and generous with our money. To say, God, all that I have is yours. It belongs to me. You have redeemed me. My identity is not in how I present myself to people or what I have or don't have. My identity is in the fact that I belong to Jesus and I am a part of his kingdom. And I am committed to walking in the spirit wherever you guide and living in a way that is countercultural and upside down. Because your grace has broken into my darkness. Your grace has released this prisoner who was once captive. Your grace has made me able to see when I was blind. Your grace has declared your favor. Because your grace, I have been declared as your child and have received your favor. So I want to encourage you this week, man, to let God offend you. To ask Jesus to make you uncomfortable. Get on your face before the Lord and say, Lord, I want to be poor in spirit and I can in my own strength. Would you make me poor in spirit? And when Jesus identifies that idol, the thing that you're holding on to, that you're ignoring, and when he tells you to take that log out of your own eye, I want you to look at it, to repent, to turn, and to trust him and his righteousness and not your own. And then I want you to rejoice. Because in Christ, no matter how you feel as you listen to this sermon, if you are recognizing that I am the one who was in that synagogue who would run Jesus to the outer parts of the town, that I am that person, to hear that in Christ there is no condemnation. But only grace. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Soldier in Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit SojournChurch.com slash Midtown.